As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're talking Americans in action. There's MLS news, American transfers, and USMNT-centric performances to discuss. To do so, I'm joined by two gentlemen. Gentlemen, Up first, we'll have to see how this episode ends up, but right now, I'm inclined to say he'll finish his performance better than Ricardo Pepe's finishing this past weekend. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, are you ready to live up to that billing? I'm so ready. Man, between you and Ryan leading in Weekend Review and now Americans in Action, the bar yeah. that you guys are setting in these intros is so low, I can't help but exceed it. Taylor, you've set me up to succeed really well today. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't sure if you would take it personally. I know that we will have a conversation about Luca De La Torre later on that I... I contemplated teasing in the introduction, but I was worried that it would come to blows immediately, and I didn't want that. But Joe, are you prepared for some verbal fisticuffs if and when the situation arises? Taylor, I'm always prepared for right. verbal fisticuffs. Yeah, that wasn't hard for me to say at all. I only stumbled like eight times. Joe, I appreciate the dedication to Yes And. Over in Scotland, it's a man who is hardworking, uh, as hardworking as Gerald DK was, but without the chorus of boos from the opposition fans, especially since Ryan Bailey is not here today to boo him. It's Graham Ruffin. Hi, Graham. Hello. I mean, it's still early in the day. There could be some boos left in my day. Who knows? I was I'm hoping, not. I'm hoping there isn't. <laughs> I mean, I would hope so too, because that that felt that felt harsh on Daryl DK. I think it's because he went down or maybe got into it once or twice. But I was not expecting all the QPR fans to to boo every single one of his touches. I like that West Brom slash Barnsley responded by not giving him that many touches, <laughs> so he didn't get booed that often. Yeah, I think I think it traced back to a moment where he sort of pushed a QPR player mm-hmm. into uh, advertising hoarding, which yeah, that'll do it. That'll get you booed. <laughs> I guess that'll do it. Road. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. All right, fine. Graham coming with the logic, the the well-reasoned logic that I don't appreciate on a Tuesday morning. Uh, now afternoon here on the East Coast, we are going to talk about Daryl DK and Ricardo Pepe later on in the show. Up first, though, Joe, we've got some MLS news to start off, and it sounds like we should just go ahead and give the Seattle Sounders uh, MLS Cup now. Is that fair to say? 
Based on the squad they're building, they're inching closer and closer to that. They signed officially Albert Rusnak in free agency as a designated player. This went down last week after a reporting saga that we'd even mentioned, I believe, last Tuesday. So this had been in the works for a while, it seems. But the deal is done. They've got him in Seattle coming over from RSL in free agency. This year's free agency has been better than any other year in Major League Soccer history, partially because at least the the regulations for who can be a free agent have been relaxed. So more players like Rusnak are now eligible for free agency. And we're seeing them move. And we're seeing them move to contenders. That's where Rusnak moved. Sean Davis moved to Nashville. I see who I would argue is going to be a contender in the Western Conference as well. But not many teams in the league have a roster stronger than Seattle right now. There are three designated players, Raul Rui Diaz, Nico Ladero, who is on the wrong side of 30 and is injured a lot. So Rusnak is a key signing for them. But Rusnak, as I said, will be that third DP. They're getting Jordan Morris back. He should be healthy and, and pretty much fully fit. By the time the season starts in late February, Jao Paulo now is a, a TAM player, I believe. He's not a designated player at this point. Christian Roldan, I mean, the list goes on. And Nuhu, Nuhu's shining right now in AFCON. The, the list of players they have that can contribute to a trophy-winning team is long, and this team is looking real good right now. Did, did anyone catch uh, Garth Lagerway's co- comments on this signing, which didn't exactly <laughs> play down expectation? He said that he <laughs> believes the Sounders team could be the best they've ever had. And then you had uh, Brian Schmetzer looking a little bit uncomfortable at that level <laughs> of pressure. I'm sure he can handle it. Don't but yeah, say he, it. Don't he, say he, it. He was shifting uncomfortably in his seat slightly with, with that expectation. It it could be, though, right? Like, it, it really it did, yeah. could be. There have been a lot of good Sounders teams in the past, and I... To be clear, I'm not as high on Rusnak as I think a lot of people are. I think he's going to be a really good complementary attacking piece for Seattle, but I don't think he really thrives when he has to run the show. And, and, and he don't, I don't think he'll have to in Seattle, but a lot of that depends on Nicolo Dero's health, and you don't necessarily want to be pinning your hopes on Nicolo Dero's health right now. So I, I'm still not 100% sure how this move is going to play out, where exactly he's going to be used, how much he's going to play, how much Seattle are going to have to rely on him. But there's no way that you can look at this and say this isn't a big signing. It is, right? This is a big move for the Sounders. Getting Rusnak, who has familiarity with Freddy Juarez, who is now an assistant coach on that staff, has familiarity with Garth Lagerway. I mean, this move makes sense in a lot of different ways, and I'm just curious to see how it's going to play out on the field. I have questions about how it's going to play out. I'm still stuck, to Graham's point, of of just saying, like, yep, no reason we won't win everything. The only reason we wouldn't is if someone drastically mismanages this team. Brian, your thoughts? Like, it really does feel like the uh, the stage is, is set for Brian Schmetzer to have a bit of a panic attack at some point this season. Uh, I don't envy him, although it does feel like he's got a, a, a ton of talent, as you said, Joe. If they have their strongest 11, if everybody is fit on day one, where do you think Rusnak fits in versus if it is Ladero injured, where do you think he fits in then? Sure. There's a big question here that I've been thinking about more and more about what shape the Sounders are going to play, first of all. Because you bring in a player like Rusnak, you get Morris back and, and fit, and, and you have wingers now in a way that you didn't have last year. Rusnak's this this half-space guy. He can be a 10. He can be in the half-space. He's, he's not going to be out wide like Jordan Morris, but he has experience playing in those spaces. And the whole reason Seattle switched, or at least a lot of the reason Seattle switched to a back three and really a two-forward front for a lot of last season is because they didn't have Jordan Morris, and they didn't have a lot of quality players who could fit in on either side of a 4-2-3-1 in that band of three. So I, first of all, Taylor, I don't know what shape they're going to play, but it does feel 
feel like they could make a move back to that 4-2-3-1. And if everyone's fit, I think it makes sense to have Nico Lodero in the middle, Rui Diaz up top, and to have Morris and Rusnak on either side. I'm guessing they'll do some swapping. Both players like to to move around a little bit. Morris is a little bit more one-dimensional. But they'll shift and they'll swap sides. Maybe Morris on the right. It is. It's a scary attack. In MLS terms, that's, that's pretty frightening if they get everyone fit. Morris on one side and Rusnak on the other with, with Rui Diaz up top is a big, big lineup. If they don't have Ladero Taylor, I think we can see a lot, and I think we will see a lot of, of Rusnak as a 10 in that 4-2-3-1 if that's the shape Schmetzer goes for, or maybe playing off Rui Diaz in a front two where he's still playing as a 10, but maybe the shape around him is a little bit different. I I personally am of the opinion that Raul Rui Diaz is a top 10 player in Major League Soccer and has been for some time. And I I feel like any team with him on it is instantly better. And then you add the other components that you've been talking about, Joe. And I do feel like this will be a super strong team. I'm guessing Rusnak did as well. The reporting I saw was that he will actually make less money with Seattle despite still being a DP, uh, which to me means... He took a bit of a pay cut to to go and compete for Seattle. Graham, uh, for you not being from the United States, so you've got the freedom to choose. Mm-hmm. If you were going to pick a team, you're going in right now. You're being signed to compete with the idea of winning silverware. Is Seattle like one of the leading clubs in that regard? Yeah, I think I think so. The winning culture that they've they've yeah. got at that franchise, you know, the the way they've dominated the West over a number of years. How many times have they made MLS Cup in recent years? You have that sort of dynasty thing under under Schmetzer, so you have that consistency. You go into that club and that team, you don't really get the sense there's going to be a change of manager halfway through the season. Obviously, anything can yeah. happen, but you don't really get the sense of that of instability. So, yeah, absolutely, they would be. If not at the top of the list, certainly near the top of the list. And from the reporting, it seems like that has been a key factor in Rusnak's uh, decision. And it has been a a fairly uh, big story. We had Lagerwey's quote that Graham mentioned. Uh, Joe, I also saw Seattle VP of Operations Craig Weibel say, it's the biggest move we've seen in league history in terms of moving from one team to another. It feels like very specific phrasing. Uh, So not the (laughs) biggest move of all time, just from one team to another. Just curious if you would agree with that or if there are other deals that you think might trump this one. I think there's at least one deal that trumps it. And again, this is coming from my perspective of thinking Rusnak is a very good but not great attacking player. And I think the Sounders probably view him as a great attacking player. And maybe they're right and I'm wrong here. But I, I don't think Rusnak is quite good enough to warrant that particular distinction. The one that comes to mind for me is Darlington Nagby and that trade from Portland to Atlanta back in 2018. That Atlanta team was pushing for trophies and they were playing the best soccer, at least the most entertaining soccer of anyone in the league at that time. And so between that factor, between the on-field style and and the names there in Atlanta, that move for me is bigger than this one. There's maybe even some others this offseason that I think could have a bigger impact. I mean, I'm thinking about Sean Davis again moving to Nashville. I think that's a huge move for Gary Smith in that Nashville team. Is it bigger than Rusnak? I don't know, but I I think the Nagby one is. And that's a great nomination. I was... Very smugly saying Landon Donovan until I looked it up and realized that he was on loan at San Jose, which I always forget. So Mm. it was not San Jose to L.A. It was, uh, I guess, Bayer Leverkusen to L.A., which I guess moves us away from Craig Weibel's point. So, Joe, (laughs) uh, credit to you for having the knowledge to uh, to break that one apart. Joe, what about the other moves that have happened in MLS that we haven't yet talked about? Jefferson uh, Soteldo, not Soltado, uh, and Carlos Salcedo potentially swapping in Toronto. 
Yeah, reports came out of Toronto that that move was going to happen. Weren't sure if it was going to be a swap deal or not. And then Sam Stageco reported that it was, in fact, going to be a swap deal. I don't believe this is done yet. Sam said it was in the eighth inning, which I assume means that it's close to being done, given that there's usually nine innings. That's for you, Graham. There you go. You're welcome. Uh, so you. so this move would send Soteldo to Tigres and would send Mexican center back Carlos Salcedo to Toronto Salcedo's 28 and can be, I really do think he can be one of the best center backs in Major League Soccer. And guys, Toronto desperately need that. They need quality in the back. They need quality in pretty much every area that isn't the forward line. And it appears that they're getting that. So Teldo wasn't really needed after the Insigne news broke. Yeah, there'll be a gap before Insigne gets here. But you don't necessarily need that extra attacking flair at this point. So move him on. And, and, and Soteldo really struggled, I think, generally to get involved in Toronto last season. Everyone struggled in Toronto last season. So you can't really take too much away from him there. But getting him off to Tigres, I think he could thrive there. And getting some quality in the back into Major League Soccer and specifically into Toronto is almost always a good thing. Not great that Salcedo is going to be a designated player, according to Sam. But I think he can still bring a lot of value in that spot. I think I think that's only the only downside of of this move is that he is going to take up one of those DP uh, places because you know Salcedo, as you say there, Joe is uh, you know twenty eight, so in the prime of his career, he knows the league already. He's an experienced yep. international, and I think it just suggests that TFC. You know, they could have got carried away after getting Insignia and it seems like they're going after Belotti, another attacking player, and they could, they could have done the old, you know, MLS, uh, 1.0 or 2.0 thing and just filling all the DP slots with attackers. But this kind of, it, it demonstrates they've got a grasp on how to actually construct a roster and they've got an understanding that they do need something at the back. And then Soteldo, as you say, has struggled. So get, allowing him to move on, it just kind of suits all parties. So I like this move. I think Salcedo was also booed by a considerable contingent of Mexico fans. I think he is not particularly popular right now with the national team and is sort of on the outside looking in there. So maybe a move uh, to Canada slash Major League Soccer is what he needs to kind of get his form back, get in the good graces, and we'll see how that one plays out. So hopefully that works out for all involved. I don't know if the next move that we need to discuss has worked out for all parties, but Joe, can we talk a little bit about what Charlotte are doing? Yeah, Charlotte are making moves, everybody. They have bought and sold a player before they've even played a game of Major League Soccer. Riley McGree, midfielder they signed from Adelaide United in uh, in Australia back in 2020 for nearly $600,000. And they weren't, they weren't playing at that time, of course, and they still haven't played a game yet, as I said. So in that meantime, between their expansion season when they signed McGree, they loaned him to Birmingham City in the championship, and, and he started playing very well, continued to play very well there. Teams started circling from all reports, and Charlotte ended up selling him for $4 million. It could rise up to $6 million. According to reports, they sold him to Middlesbrough in uh, in England. So a player they wanted to keep their hands on from what I've read and from what I understand, but who maybe didn't want to come to Major League Soccer after all when teams like Middlesbrough and teams like Celtic, who's probably the biggest name team that was circling around him, we're calling. So uh, shout out to Charlotte for having yet another player that they officially had on their roster and then no longer on their roster, along with Tristan Blackman and Tajiri Sharadi, uh, move on before their first ever game. Graham, since Ryan is not with us today, uh, any thoughts uh, on Charlotte's activities so far? I know Ryan <laughs> would would come in with, with some insights, but I, I turned it over like, to you. You're British. Tell us yeah. about Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we all know about Charlotte FC, um, and we all know the Queen. Um, the, the 
Um, not not so much. Uh, this this deal in particular was one that I was keeping an eye on because, as Joe said there, for a long time it seemed like he was going to Celtic and Celtic were openly saying they were expecting him there to have a medical and so on. Then he did a U-turn when Middlesbrough offered more money, which annoyed Celtic, and he seems like he's annoyed Charlotte by leaving them before they've even played a game. Did anyone catch the quotes from... Um, the Charlotte Sporting Director Zoran Cornetta. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Did anyone see those quotes? No. I did. What he says? He said, "From day one, myself and the rest of the leadership of this club have been saying that we want players who want to be here. Riley McGree, McGree has become a better player, and then decided that he doesn't want to come back to us unless he has to, and that wasn't good enough for us. We didn't like that. We didn't like the player who is who is coming because we are persuading him to come." That doesn't sound like that ended on the best of terms. I mean, Charlotte FC have got their four to six million dollars, which is good. You know, the wheeling and dealing, that's, that's good for them. But yeah, they, I, I wouldn't expect the Christmas card from Charlotte FC or Ryan Bailey if I was Riley McGree. Uh, Riley McGree. <laughs> Uh, and Graham, uh, just before we get angry tweets, we should note it's pronounced Middlesbrough. That's how everyone likes to pronounce it. So just so you know. Yeah, or if you're from the north of the UK or Scotland, just Middlesbrough, just like <laughs> that's towards the end. <laughs> Middlesbrough. <laughs> that is, that is perfect pronunciation from abroad. Speaking of abroad, uh, Kellen Acosta will not be moving there, Joe Lowry. He's instead moving to LAFC, but there is lots of drama about this one. Uh, Acosta traded to LAFC in exchange for a guaranteed $1.1 million in GAM, up to an additional $400,000 in conditional GAM. Uh, Graham, I'm going to come to you to break down exactly what those terms mean. I'm sure, sure. you can do it succinctly. I'm excited. <laughs> but Joe, uh, Acosta claimed that there had been offers from Europe. Uh, I guess uh, the Burgundy Wave reporting that those offers seemed to be a smokescreen, that most of the offers were coming from MLS. Acosta responded to that, saying uh, that that reporting was... I can't sad. remember his exact phrasing. The narrative, narrative is sad. sad. The narrative is sad. Oof. Oof. Yeah. When, whenever anyone is <laughs> tweeting that something is sad, it, it triggers an initial response. But in this yeah. case, it feels like maybe there's a little bit of truth in between the lines. Who knows? All we know for sure is that Kellen Acosta is going to LAFC. Yeah, we don't, we don't really fully know a lot of what's going on here. There's been conflicting reports, well, really just conflicting reports between all the journalists who are saying the same thing and Kellen Acosta, who's saying something different. Feels weird that Kellen Acosta would not know what's going on here, but I, I, I don't really know what's happening. I'm not in that situation. Tom Bogart reported last week, now official, as you said, Taylor, that that Acosta trade was going to happen. Acosta was nearing the end of his contract in Colorado, and Colorado wanted to make sure that they got something out of him, so they were looking to move him. Acosta wanted to go abroad, as you mentioned, but we're not sure if there was interest or not. And, and so Colorado made the move. The Revs were interested, according to reports, but their offer wasn't high enough, and LAFC came in with a better offer, and they made that trade. From Colorado's perspective, they can get more GAM out of trading him, and, and they did get more game out of trading him to LAFC, at least at $1.1 million, then they can get off of transferring him abroad. So the transfer fee abroad might have been $2 million, but they can't get all of that $2 million in GAM. So they actually did make the move, at least in terms of general allocation money, that netted them the most profit in that particular mechanism. So it, it's a smart move from Colorado, I believe. I think it's a good move for Acosta. LAFC is a bit of a question mark right now with Steve Trundolo coming in, but he's going to get minutes there. He's going to play. He could be a six. He could be an eight. Trundolo said that he wants to add an extra shot of explosiveness, I think was the quote, in transition. 
with and without the ball. Acosta's good at that kind of stuff. Atuesta's gone. Mark Anthony Kay was traded last summer to the Rapids. So there's opportunities for him to play in that midfield, and I, I think he'll enjoy LA and playing for LAFC. So a weird move, a drama-filled move, but I think it could turn out to be a good one. I'm not really sure yet, guys. It's, it's a bit of a coup for LAFC because it feels like they need players like him at this moment in terms of their, their transition into a new manager. They need players to, to build around. There are a lot of traffic in and out of that franchise at the moment. So... Yeah, it's a, it's a positive signing. I do wonder at 26 whether Kellen Acosta, was this his chance to get a, a foreign move? Mm. Will that opportunity come again? Um, you know, is, 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 was this the chance for him to kind of test himself in Europe if we're assuming offers were made in Europe? I, I don't know. It's, uh, there's a lot of question marks about this one. Joe, I, I genuinely don't mean this to be like an insult in any way. It's just, it, 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 hug on my ear a little bit. When I think of explosiveness, I don't think Kellen Acosta. And again, that's not trying to say he's a bad player or he's plotting sure. or something like that. I just, I don't think of him as this like high octane difference maker. I think of him as a very reliable central midfielder. So that seems to stand at odds with what uh, Terendolo said about him. A- am I like misreading this one or am I just sort of uh, having too literal of an interpretation of what explosive means potentially? Maybe, maybe slightly too literal. Acosta Costa's not like this Energizer bunny, right? He's not going to, mm. to burst around and be Latif Blessing. There's a guy who's explosive, right? There's a guy who's yeah, going to do all exactly. of those energetic yeah. things. Acosta, though, Taylor, I think about Atuesta and how he used to anchor this LAFC midfield. If Acosta plays at the six, and we don't know if that's going to happen, it could be Ilya who moved to, to LAFC in free agency, but I think he might be more of a center back for them. Who knows? There's a lot of unknowns here. But wherever Acosta is in that midfield, he covers ground. And Taylor, we've seen him do that for the U.S. And I think that's why Baralther values him behind Tyler Adams at that six spot is because he's going to do that dirty work defensively. He's going to move. He's going to cover ground. He's going to interrupt play. And that's Acosta's best skill. So he might not be this incredibly fast, aggressive player in transition, but I think he provides opportunities for the players around him to do those things in transition because he can cover so much of that ground, because he can press, because he can move laterally and move vertically. He finds the, he finds those opportunities to pick up the ball and then play forward. So I think that's maybe the connection I would make between the Chirondolo quote and Acosta's game. But really, we won't know, Taylor. We won't know how he fits or what the vision is for Acosta in L.A. until we're a good way into the season. And as you said, Joe, hopefully this ends with him enjoying life in L.A. Uh, I, I'm, I'm choosing to believe he watched Ricardo Pepe play for Augsburg. He watched Daryl DK at West Brom, maybe a little bit of Josh Sargent, and thought, yeah, you know what, L.A. L.A. seems fine with me. Let's make yeah, that happen. Yeah, uh, I'll stay we, we do have two other moves uh, for Americans abroad that we should talk about briefly. Uh, Justin Che to Hoffenheim, Joe, and Cole Bassett to Feyenoord. I don't know if either of those are confirmed as of yet or what the status is with either sure. of those moves, but they both seem likely. Yeah, the Justin Che move is confirmed. He's moving to Hoffenheim from FC Dallas on an 18-month loan with an option to buy. I like this move for Justin Che. Hoffenheim's worked really well for Chris Richards, I believe. I think this is a good spot for Che to develop and eventually start to get some first-team minutes. So I like that for them. I think it'll ultimately pay off for Dallas because I'm a big believer in – well, I'm a believer. It's still a little too early for me to say I'm a big believer in Che's game. But I think he's going to be a good player. So I I think that 18-month loan could work out for everybody here. And then Cole Bassett, I don't think is confirmed yet. There was a picture floating around on Twitter of him either in the Netherlands or on his way to the Netherlands. This thing is going to happen from everything that I, I can see online. He's reportedly close to that move to Feyenoord in the Eredivisie. First reported by a Dutch outlet, confirmed by Tom Bogert. Another 18-month loan with a purchase option should the deal go through. 
Feyenoord are currently third in the Eredivisie, uh, so they're a competitive team there. Bassett won't walk right into the starting lineup, I don't believe, but I, I think he could develop there over time and start to get some real minutes. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be tough for him to to get into that team, in my opinion. Like I I looked through a lot of Feyenoord's results for this season, as you say, Joe. They are a competitive team in the Eredivisie right now, and it seems like the strongest area of their team. So they do play with three attacking midfielders, but that seems to be the strongest area of their team. So they have uh, Jahan Batch, who uh, listeners might remember from his time at Brighton, uh, Gus Till, who's a, a a Dutch central attacking midfielder. He's been playing really well this season, and then Sinistrera. And they've all been excellent this season. So unless he's kind of a rotation option in those positions, you know, maybe in, in um, as a rotation, you know, in between games, he's going to get game time. But as a starter, it might be difficult for him. All right. We'll keep an eye on Cole Bassett and Justin Chet Hoffenheim, where I think, uh, w- which I think will be end up being a good move for him just because the Bayern deal, it felt like that was taking a very long time, but it felt like Bayern had plenty of depth at center back all of a sudden, so we don't know how long that would have taken for Justin Che to play there. Theoretically, it will take him less time to play at Hoffenheim. Uh, if and when he does, we will talk about him on this very episode, I'm sure. For now, we're going to take a break, then we're going to come back and talk about some more Americans already doing things in Europe. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. We still have Graham Ruthven with us. He he tried to uh, die of sickness during the break, but he is still with us. Alfonso <laughs> Davies, however, not with us uh, for World Cup qualifiers, if you are Canadian at least. Um, Joe Lowry, uh, he is officially out now. Is that correct? Yeah, he is officially out with myocarditis. He had COVID, and apparently yeah. the doctors caught this uh, after his his routine checkup that he had after mostly recovering from COVID. So he was already missing time with Bayern Munich, but was supposed to be back sort of for the end of January and for those World Cup qualifiers. Now will not be according to Bayern and according to Canada. So obviously we wish Alfonso Davies the best. He is, man, he's so much fun to watch. I'm yep. really genuinely bummed right? that he's not going to be in that game for Canada against the United yeah. States. But more important than any of that Are stuff you, is... Uh, okay, part of me, okay, Graham. Okay, Graham. Part of me is, part of me is not, I suppose. Yeah. But either way, all the best to Alfonso Davies, and, and hopefully he gets yeah. all the rest and time that he needs. I, I gauge it like this uh, to Graham's question because I have that same dilemma, and it really is like, oh, he's not going to be playing. Oh, that's that's good. Like it's it's a it's definitely a like, oh, that's good for U.S. purposes. But he's so fun to watch, and I think he also just raises the quality of the game. That I think he makes the U.S. do some different things, have some different looks, and is a more realistic representation of what they would meet if and when they were to qualify for the World Cup. So not having him as an opponent is. Sort of a positive, but definitely a negative in its own way. And then obviously for him to have the, uh, to have COVID, to have the complications from COVID is also not a thing I would wish on a young player.
player, and especially a young player who loves Brooklyn Nine-Nine as much as Alfonso Davies does. <laughs> so we wish him uh, all the best, uh, but we wish the USMNT just a little bit more the best. And with that in mind, let's talk about some Americans who did some things this weekend. Graham, let's start with Ricardo Pepe getting his first start for Augsburg. Uh, a, a good result in the sense that he started and was on the pitch, less so that maybe didn't get the goals that we would have liked to see. But I felt like I saw a lot of good work from him, a lot of positive moments in an otherwise less than inspiring game overall. Yeah, so we all predicted last week that he would probably start this this game and, and that proved to be the case. So looking at where he slotted into this team, um, who scored had this system as a 4-4-2 with Pepe and Gregorich as the front two. But to me, this was frequently a 4-3-3 with Pepe on yeah. the right side of the attack. That certainly seemed to be where he was um, pressing when he was out of possession. So th- this was slightly different to his first appearance for Augsburg uh, off the bench against Hoffenheim last week. I had to think who that was against. Um, looking at the stat sheets, the stats sheet, difficult to say that. Uh, he had two shots for Augsburg, which is the, the most of any Augsburg player, both of them on target, one key pass, one dribble, 36 touches of the ball. So these are all the, the sort of numbers you would expect of a striker just without a goal or two. And I think that pretty much summed up his performance. I saw a lot of the good things from his, um, 30 minute cameo on his debut. They were here again. So once again, I thought hit the energy was one of the best things about his, his performance. Whether that was off the ball when he was frequently the one leading the, the high press. Um, you know, another thing I noticed a few times was when Pepe would receive the ball, he would lay it off to one of the wings and then he would bust a gut to break into the box. And he didn't always get the service he needed. Sometimes he did. And I think we'll speak about that later on. But the fact that he's making those runs is, is, is really encouraging. There was always a, a thrust to those movements. And I think it's only a matter of time until his teammates really tune into those movements. Um, I did notice in the first half, it was pretty difficult for him to find space. I don't know if you guys noted that as well, but Frank, uh, Frankfurt were getting a lot of players around the, the Augsburg attackers. Um, and yeah, it was, he was, he was doing good work in close spaces, but a lot of the time it was, he was having to take a touch very quickly and, and play a pass very quickly and not really getting an opportunity to run at anyone. Not that that's really his, his game anyway, but he did have a couple good chances, um, which we can, we can maybe anal- analyze between the three of us. He will be disappointed. I think that he didn't find the back of the net with one of those chances. Yeah, and Graham, I'm glad you've laid all that out because I think I kind of led into this one with more negativity than was potentially necessary. This is an Augsburg team that, though they are near the relegation fight, remain outside of it right now. And this is an Eintracht Frankfurt team that uh, caused Dortmund a ton of problems before eventually conceding three, but they went out to that 2-0 lead, and we were all really impressed by what we saw from them and the way they defended, the way they attacked, how aggressive they were, how many problems they caused for Dortmund. So I'm not surprised to see them causing problems for Augsburg in this game. And I think Pepe, for the most part, handled that pressure. I thought he was he was pretty tidy when he needed to be, Joe. I also saw his defensive work rate being pretty high, pretty excellent. I saw him winning the ball back on a number of occasions in a way that I don't think they would have otherwise. And that means Augsburg are winning the ball higher up the pitch and getting more attacking opportunities. I think it just comes down to the finishing when you sign this highly touted attacker, you're expecting there to be a little bit more attacking creativity, creating a few more chances, and that would maybe be the one area where he didn't quite shine on the day. 
Well, Pepe's game, Taylor, is never to create chances on his own, and that's the challenge True. with Augsburg, and that's the challenge with this move, and that's that's been something I've mentioned from the beginning. He's reliant on other people to create for him, and his job is to get into good spots to then put the ball in the back of the net. So it, it's a hard balance for him because this Augsburg team just doesn't create a lot of chances. They haven't scored many goals this season. A number of the ones they have scored have been off of set pieces, so they're not this this team in open play that's really going to threaten all that much. So it's a hard balance to strike for Pepe, and it's going to be challenging for him to find a lot of opportunities to put the ball in the back of the net. Now, before maybe we, we get to some of those chances he had, defensively, I completely agree with you, Taylor. I thought he was active in his movement. He pressured the ball pretty well uh, and was clearly willing to do a lot of that defensive dirty work. So that stuff was really good. I didn't like as much, and I think this is going to be a theme of Pepe really throughout the rest of this season, some of his hold-up play was good, but you can clearly see that he needs to get stronger. And he's just he's just turned 19. That's going to come with time. I'm not saying he should be there right now, but that's going to be an issue for him, I think, in the Bundesliga. It's a step up, certainly, from MLS in terms of the quality and, and, and strength and, and overall athletic ability of opposing center backs. And, and I thought he struggled a little bit against Indica in this game for Eintracht Frankfurt. So I'm going to be watching that going forward to see how he does with the man on his back. But in terms of the movement, I, I agree. I think the general theme from this game is Pepe had some good runs. And I think if he continues a lot of these moves, he's going to find himself putting the ball in the back of the net. It's going to happen. If you continue to put yourself in good goal-scoring positions, the goals will come. Pepe has actually had it as three shots in this game. I don't know if you guys if you guys saw that, but all the stats places I looked had it as two. But I, I saw it as three, and I don't know exactly what the reasoning for that is. But according to my notes, at least, he has a shot in the 11th minute. Pepe makes this really nice run through Frankfurt center backs. A teammate plays him through into the box, and Pepe's shot goes really well wide. Maybe that's the one that wasn't recorded because the shot was just so, so wide. Either way, great run, good movement <laughs> off the ball, finding space It's so bad, we're not recording box. that one. <laughs> it could be. I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. The next one that I saw was good movement to arrive, <laughs> good movement to arrive in the penalty spot in the 40th minute. Pepe sees that two teammates are moving towards the back post. So he doesn't rush to fill that spot. Instead, he goes to the space just above the penalty spot. The ball ends up coming to him, and he doesn't get a lot of his foot through the ball. It's a bouncy shot with not a lot of speed. It's cleared off the line by a defender. But again, good spatial awareness and recognition. And then the first sequence of the, of the second half. Augsburg are in possession. They move the ball up the left wing. Pepe makes a run from the far side and arrives between two Frankfurt defenders. Just gets in front of one. Cuts to the corner of the six-yard box and, and gets a shot right in front of the center back that's saved by the goalkeeper. Again, the finishing touch isn't there, but I'm a firm believer in the fact that if you continue to put yourself in those good spots, like I think Pepe did for at least sections of this game, good things are going to happen. Yeah, that that third chance you mentioned there, Joe, I, I don't think Pepe could have done much more with that. You know, he yeah. makes a good run to the near post, the teammate spots the run, is tuned into his movement, he gets a clean connection on it and the, and the goalkeeper makes the save. Out of the other two chances, I'm conflicted over which was the which was the better chance. Um, maybe the second the second one. It feels like if he just gets a clean contact on that, it, sure. it potentially ends up in the back of the net. But obviously, he only kind of has a split second to think about it. The goalkeeper is right on top of him. So I think between one of those two chances, the first two chances you mentioned, maybe one of those should have resulted in a, in a goal. Well, and the, the challenge is, Graham, you're talking about how hard these, these are, and these aren't easy, right? These are not gimmies. I looked at the expected goals, and it only had those those two shots instead of all three. But I think Pepe was still under .3 expected goals, and so it's a very small sample size, and it's not indicative of a player's overall quality from just one game. But these are not 
like, you know, 0.6 expected goal shots. These are not penalty kicks. They're not shots that you automatically expect someone to convert. And so that's, that's a blessing and a curse for Pepe. In, in one hand, it kind of vindicates him for not having, it clears him of not having, you know, put the ball in the back of the net. But on the other hand, it also shows that he still needs to find better spots and Augsburg need to get him the ball in better shooting areas. So it is a bit of a double-edged sword. I think I agree overall, though, that like the runs he's making, the energy he's putting in is the good kind of foundational block. And then as he gets more time with the team, he beds in a bit more. I think his teammates know where he's going to be. They know to look for those runs. Maybe they match some of that enthusiasm, some of that energy. And so I, I feel like this was a good uh first start for him. Joe, I wanted to drill down a little bit deeper on one thing you said. When you talk about him needing to get stronger with a man on his back, are sure. you talking about in the air? Do you want him competing for more 50-50s? Are you talking about that thing when <laughs> the ball is going into his feet, he's got a guy on his back, he's got to be able to ride that challenge while controlling the ball, or is it something else Davis entirely? Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think I think both. Really, I'm thinking when the ball is on the ground because I think there's just more of those situations, at least with the national team. Probably not with Augsburg, but with the national team, certainly. But in all of those moments, he had some good sequences with his back to goal, but he just doesn't look built enough. He doesn't look – he's not filled out to the point where I feel like he can really withstand a whole lot of pressure coming at him from an opposing center back. So whatever sequences and whatever moments that comes into play, I think those are things that Pepe's going to need to work on. All right. So, uh, if we're, if we're saying thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs, we're in, somewhere in the middle. Joe, what are you saying about Ricardo Pepe's, uh, first start for Augsburg? I'll go thumbs up. I think this is a All good right. building block. Let's not gloss over it. And I definitely did this. This is his first start. Like, congratulations yeah. to Ricardo Pepe. And this is a good building block. So between those, those milestones and between the things we talked about, yeah, it's a thumbs up for me. And Graham, thumbs medium for you, I'm assuming. Yeah, thumb, yeah, thumbs medium, yep. like, yep. like yep. most things with me. Yeah. Graham's thumb doesn't go above that sideways <laughs> angle, right? He, he only goes is... down from there. Yeah. First of all, I agree with that. Second of all, that's why we need Graham here, though, because Joe and I have so much like unfettered positivity for the U.S. men's national team. We need Graham to be like, hey, guys, it was a pass. When Joe and I go for five <laughs> minutes about this lateral pass that somebody hits, that was the no, best I'm... lateral pass you could have possibly seen. We need Graham there to remind us I'm... that... It's just a pass, and he's still there to score goals. I'm maybe I'm maybe being slightly harsh. There were very encouraging signs, but if yeah. uh, you know we start going two, three, four games without a goal, and he's missing chances like this in that number of games, then maybe that starts to become a bit of a problem. But encouraging, I thought. How much more positive uh, was Ricardo Pepe's performance after watching Daryl DK play for West Brom? Oh, Graham? yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's... Are we going to have to analyze many of his yeah. games for West Brom? Uh, oh, dear. I mean, it, I, I think we should give it like a good good faith effort three games. And after that, we can just sort of copy and paste the same comments. If... The situation continues because Daryl DK makes his West Brom debut coming off the bench in the 59th minute in a 1-0 loss to QPR. Uh, and as we've already sort of uh, referenced, tough going is what Graham has in the notes. Uh, but it really was a lot of long balls. It was very reminiscent of what we saw from Barnsley uh, last season with Daryl DK in there. Graham, was this 
as chaotic to you as it was to me, I think because of the camera angle, it was right on the pitch. It was kind of a tight the angle. classic championship it, camera angle, baby. Oh, man. It just made it look so chaotic from the jump and the, the bad conditions with people losing their footing. Daryl DK really starts to lose his footing later on in the game. It just felt like maybe a good sort of welcome back to the championship introduction after he, he was playing in Orlando, which has a slightly different atmosphere and temperature than I would say uh, the Midlands does. Yeah, so I'm going to provide a sneak peek behind the curtain here, the TSS curtain, but using Scout to analyse DK's game here, they had his actions listed as pretty yep. much aerial duel, yep. aerial duel, yep. aerial duel, yep. loose ball duel, Ooh. back to aerial duel, ah, and that one. kind of summed it up. <laughs> and it, yeah, I'm not sure how much analysis I can do of this because... I know we spoke about how West Brom would use DK for his physical attributes. And so this sort of usage of him wasn't too surprising, but I was just concerned and frankly bored <laughs> by how, just how many times they were lumping balls up to him. I mean, what is he meant to, to do with that? I know he's a, you know, he's, he's a physical sort of attacker, but it, you know, it, it, it just didn't really it didn't really show what he can do. And the, and the few times that they did spin him into channels, they most notably kind of down the right side, he looked quite dangerous. But it was it was just a very one-dimensional performance by DK. Not really his fault. I get the sense that was the, the tactics from the team. And and it backfired as well, because of course, when he comes on, it's it's goalless. And then QPR get the, the winner in the 89th minute in this match. So it, it didn't even work. And Joe, like, I felt watching this game like there were moments from Daryl DK when he was trying to play quick attacking soccer. I did, did see him doing a pretty good job with this hold-up play, uh, or as good of a job as he could have done given how many times they just kind of looked for him long and hoped that something would happen. But at times it also reminded me of those sort of like, the practices where one team is beating the other, and so the coach will instill they're like, no, you have to take four touches before you can pass the ball to try to slow the other team down to make it a bit more even. And when DK would play one and two touch passes, it seemed like the rest of the team had to teach him that, no, we want to take four touches before we can lump the ball log. And it did seem to slow down as the game went on, and I don't know if that's the best thing for a potential number nine for the U.S. team, a U.S. team that wants that number nine to drop in and link up play and possess and move the ball and then get on the end of kind of crosses in. I don't know how much sort of uh, direct relationship there is between what Barnsley, excuse me, West Brom, want to do <laughs> and what the U.S. men's national team wants to do. Yeah, there's very little connection. I don't see much overlap at all. There is some. And if DK, DK plays for the U.S. men's national team again in the near future, he will be asked to do some of this long ball collection, right? He will do some power forward-esque things because that's what he's doing at club level. And he has the frame and the skill set to do that. So there will be some overlap just because I think DK fits the mold of a more aggressive aerial outlet, certainly more than any of the other U.S. men's national team players do, at least on a physical level. I'm not sure he's quite there yet with all of the aspects of his hold-up play, I think back to the Gold Cup this summer. And I don't know that he was especially good at that, but he did look a lot better over the weekend for West Brom. So I'll certainly warrant, I'll certainly, I'll certainly grant him that. But DK, man, we, we've seen this story before, Taylor. I got major deja vu watching this film. Mm -hmm. Not only is he playing for the same manager in Valerian Ishmael, but he's also wearing the exact same color that he wore at times for Barnsley. West Brom were yeah. wearing a yellow kit, not yeah. their primary kit. Barnsley's <laughs> primary kit's not yellow either, but he wore that yellow kit before. And I turned into this game and thought, what is happening right now? The camera angle is the same. The lighting, the grass, everything is exactly where we left it in the English championship. He had some good moments. He looked sharp. I thought, which is great for a player who hasn't played a competitive game in two or three months. All of those things are encouraging. 
But we're going to see this same story a lot for Daryl DK. And I think we talked about how we were going to see this story when the move happened. We predicted this is what was going to happen. And here we are, guys. It's happening. I think, like, if things go the way they they could go with West Brom, which is that they continue to be kind of long ball, very direct. It doesn't let Daryl DK develop certain aspects of his game. I think all you can do is hope that if it goes really poorly and they don't get promoted or they end up mid-table in the championship for a couple seasons, all you can hope for is that he isn't the sort of focal point of the blame that if anything, it's he's the one who is making that team better. And I think to some extent, that's what he was for Barnsley last season with his goal scoring form. And even in this game, the way I think in the 68th minute, he forces a corner and then turns and kind of picks up the away supporters who were fairly quiet. He picks them up, they start screaming and they're good and loud for the next couple minutes. And I think the maybe the best case scenario of a worst case scenario is that he is sort of a fan favorite for an underperforming team. And then the alternative would be that West Brom sort of play the very basic football you need to play to get promoted, to stay in that promotion conversation. Maybe they evolve from there. Maybe they don't. But at the very least, if he's part of a team that gets promoted, that doesn't hurt his resume. I'll put it that way. So there's still, I think, plenty of reasons for optimism. I just think a lot of those reasons for optimism still require you to watch a lot of long balls through the air. Yeah. Let's, uh, here's what we should do. Here's my proposal. Yeah. We take turns. Let's take turns. Yeah. yeah? Let's, Taylor, you can have DK next week. I'll take him the week after. Graham can have him. And then once we've gone through our due diligence of three more games or whatever we said, then we can decide if, if we're just going to stop watching. I'm just kidding. It's, it's a little bit harsh and there'll be Uh, good moments along the way, but. Too late uh, now. (laughs) It's too late now. I'm looking at the schedule. All right. Let me, let me, let me say this. So we've got, uh, like, Graham, uh, if you have to watch a game of West Brom versus Peterborough, West Brom versus Preston, West Brom versus Millwall, or West Brom versus Sheffield United, which of those do you least want to watch? Which one do you think has Millwall. the potential? Okay. <laughs> Millwall is going to be the worst for sure? Yeah. I mean, that might actually break out into a fight. <laughs> it's, it's the yeah. old, like, to steal the, ho- or paraphrase the hockey one, It's uh, I went to a... A fight last night and a hockey game broke out. That's what Millwall West Brom is going to be. All right. Perfect. 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 Exactly. All right. So Graham gets Millwall West Brom. Perfect. I like that. (laughs) I can't, uh, I can't say I have much enthusiasm for watching West Brom if they're going to play like this with, with DK. But hey, for when Mourinho is the the US national team manager, you know, this is, DK could be useful in this, in this guys. Is this what like the TSS hazing initiation is going to be that Graham just (laughs) has to watch West Brom over and over again? Is that how, is that how we indoctrinate? into the u.s what's that is it legal can we do that <laughs> that's, that's yeah that's that's one of the ones they made illegal taylor yeah <laughs> the geneva convention has a specific phrase about west Brom and long balls perfect i like it all right well then while i try to figure out whether or not this is good punishment uh we will take one more break and we'll be back to talk about uh some more americans doing things abroad Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp 
without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Welcome back. We've got a bunch more Americans to discuss uh, in various lengths. Graham, let's start with Christian Pulisic. Started for Chelsea against Man City, uh, and it sounds like the commentators have decided that Christian Pulisic is the problem for Chelsea. Yeah, I don't know if this happens with the, the commentators in, in the States, but the commentary teams here in the UK, they'll, 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 there will just be players that they, they decide they're, they've had enough of or, or they're not having. And, and I think Pulisic has become one of those players, certainly for the BT Sport commentary team. They were giving him a really tough time in this match. And, and it's not the first time that I've, I've, I've noted that. And I can, I can understand it to a certain extent. You know, he was having to do a lot of defensive work. His attacking output was pretty limited in this game. It felt like he was taking just too many touches of the ball. And there were a number of occasions when Pulisic had to had the chance to drive an opponent only for him to turn back and play a, a sideways pass or a backwards pass. It, it was a frustrating performance, um, but I'm going to try and defend them slightly. So in, in the Champions League final, when Ch- Chelsea beat Manchester City last season, one of the things they did really well was they, they drew City out. So they drew them out in the high press. And one of the ways they did that was with sideways passes and, and backwards passes. Then they would hit balls in behind for, I think it was Havertz that started that game as the, as the, as the centre forward or maybe Timo Werner. But anyway, that tactic was really effective. So I wonder if they were trying to replicate that and Pulisic was actually just... Um, carrying out those orders and maybe if he had taken on his man then maybe that would have not pleased Tuchel but it, whatever way whatever was meant it wasn't very effective are we concerned about Christian Pulisic or Graham you as a person who has less of a rooting interest in him mm-hmm. do you see areas where maybe that criticism is valid yeah absolutely um you know if if he if that isn't his instruction to maybe not go at his man more then yeah absolutely he he should be going at defenders more when he has the opportunity and he had the opportunity more than once 
in in this match. I, in general, I'm just quite fearful for Pulisic Chelsea place. I know he he's now getting a lot more game time than when I said a few weeks ago that maybe he should look to go out on loan. I maybe don't I don't really hold that opinion anymore because he is getting a lot of game time. That might be down to injuries, um, but he is he is starting matches at the moment. But if he continues in this current vein of form. I don't think he's safe at Chelsea at the end of the season. I think he's one of the players that they could look to to move on. You know, there's 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 always talk about Chelsea attackers. You look through that front line. Is there a player in that squad in the, in terms of the attacking options that you would say safe? I, I wouldn't. You know, Timo Werner, Callum Hudson Odoi, Ziyech, Pulisic, Lukaku recently. You know, a lot of speculation about him. So, yeah, I'm, I feel like Pulisic needs to really earn his place at Chelsea because I'm I'm slightly concerned about him. It does kind of depend on where we are with Lukaku finishing his Clockwork Orange treatment of watching all the videos of him loving Chelsea to make him fully love Chelsea. That always will tell us uh, how much he's going to be there for the long term. But that aside, I, I, I think I have concerns about Pulisic, but I think one of the things that still has me confused is that in my mind, and I welcome either of you to confirm or deny this, in my mind, Thomas Tuchel is a manager who prioritizes ball retention over the individual sort of take on. And I don't really remember times at Dortmund where his team were built around one player sort of going at people. I may well be very wrong. I might be just completely misremembering things. But I I think about that, and then I think about Pulisic going at people, but then cutting it back, or then playing that safe ball. And to me, that sort of feels like what he's being asked to do, Graham, to your initial point. And if he is, if he were encouraged to take people on, and if you lose it, you lose it, then like I would love that. I think that kind of frees him up a bit more. But I do wonder how much of it is Tuchel not wanting to lose the ball there. And so to some extent, Pulisic is doing what's asked of him, even if it's consistently unremarkable. There's a time for everything, Taylor. I think that's an important thing to to note here. Tuchel does prioritize ball retention in certain areas of the field as you progress forward in his in his own half, right? And in maybe the first half of the attacking half as well. Those are areas where he wants to keep the ball and control the game. If they lose the ball, then to counterpress, certainly in the attacking half. But when you get the ball to a player like Christian Pulisic, who's really his entire game, or at least the vast majority of his offensive game, is that 1v1 ability you want him to drive at someone. You want him to try and break someone. You want him to get into the box and create something with that dribbling ability to burst by somebody and put a ball in on the floor in the box or to create a shooting chance for himself or for a teammate. And I think the challenge is getting him in the, getting in the ball in the right spots, first of all, and then getting him effective and, and helping him to drive at somebody and really create. And I don't think we saw that against City. I don't think we've seen that as much this season as we would like. So getting him into those areas and and really encouraging him to make those moves and then actually watching them come off and watching him be effective, there's not enough of that right now. But I do think a big part of what Tuchel wants of Pulisic is to be dangerous on the dribble and to be one of the players for Chelsea that can cap off those long sequences of control and ball retention with a moment of danger. And we definitely didn't see that nearly enough against Manchester City. So Graham, with that in mind, what do you think would potentially have commentators leaning the other way. Is it just going a good goal-scoring run? Is it getting a bunch of assists? Or is it just sort of taking people on successfully, making things a bit more exciting? Do you think that's enough to to return him to the good graces of the angry British pundits? Well, I mean, goals and assists would obviously do the trick. But yeah, I think I think the latter would be enough. They just, they just want to see Pulisic do what we were all told. And obviously his first season was what we saw a lot of good from Christian Pulisic in his first season. He had a, a bit of a slow start at Chelsea, but once he got motoring, you know, I, I remember 
articles and, and opinion pieces on how Chelsea had kind of safeguarded the, the future of the, the club by replacing Hazard, who was maybe getting on slightly, with a, a basically a younger version of him. There was a, he was he was held in high esteem. And so I think that's maybe the context is that people are expecting that level from him now. And we haven't really seen that. Obviously, injuries have been a factor, but we haven't really seen that from him for a long time. So, yeah, if he, if he was just sort of more like the player of old, then I think the the commentators and the pundits would get off his back. But obviously, the the big difference is that there's a there's a different manager who wants different things from this team at the moment. And I'm not totally convinced, as long as Tuchel is there, that Pulisic is is a good fit for that side. I do also one final point for me would be that anytime Mason Mount is on the bench, uh, I think anytime you have a British pundit, I think it was Steve McManaman for this one. Uh, there's always going to be a couple mentions to like bring in Mason Mount. Mason Mount could make a difference. So I also wonder how much that factors into some of that criticism, but we shall see how the rest of the season plays out for Pulisic. A long way still to go. Uh, same as the case for Chris Richards started for Hoffenheim in a two to one loss to uh, Union Berlin. Uh, a lot of Americans in the Bundesliga, not surprisingly. Tyler Adams starting for Leipzig in a 2-0 win over Stuttgart, uh, where Pellegrino Matarazzo remains in charge despite Stuttgart going further into the relegation zone. John Brooks starting for Wolfsburg in a 0-0 draw with Hertha Berlin. But we're going to go back to England, Graham, uh, for Josh Sargent. Started for Norwich in their win over Everton, the win that uh, cemented Rafa Benitez's role as not Everton's manager. Graham, are, do you, at this point, do you feel like Americans are allowed to be fun when it comes to the number nine spot? Like, I feel like all we do is ask you to watch Americans not quite <laughs> perform in attacking roles. Well, that certainly describes Josh Sargent at the moment. Um, he's having a difficult season, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. He's not a player that I had watched a great deal of before. Obviously, I'd heard his name, you know, countless times when he was playing in the Bundesliga. I can't say I watched a lot, a great deal of him when he was in the Bundesliga. I am, I am struggling to yeah. grasp him as a player at Norwich City. He 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 was shifted back to a wider role in this game against Everton. He obviously played through the the middle in the FA Cup. He didn't make the most of that opportunity. I didn't feel he offered a great deal in this wide role either. He at least does a lot of running and there's a lot of effort there. Exactly, I think yeah. maybe Norwich fans quite like that. But in terms of his attacking output, there's very little to talk about and to be completely yeah. honest. It it feels like some Norwich fans like it. I feel like others were booing him uh, pregame recently. So maybe not the, the most fun of times for him. Really, the, the like where I am with him at Norwich, it's similar to Don't Look Up on Netflix, the, uh, the Adam McKay movie, <laughs> in which like, I know that it, it's it's there. It's it's Premier League. It's a it's an exciting movie on Netflix, but at the same time, it's going to be frustrating and sad. And I sort of know what it's going to be before I even watch it, and I can't quite bring myself to watch it as a result. Uh, that's sort of how I feel about Josh Sargent right now. Hopefully, that turns around, but it seems slightly unlikely. So maybe we should just move on to talk about other players, unless anyone has anything else to say about Josh Sargent. Not that I. silence nothing, is telling. Nothing, nothing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Reggie Cannon starts as a center back again for Boavista in a one-to-one draw with Gila Vicente. Uh, Vicente, uh, probably butchered that one. Apologies for that. In the Bundesliga, again, Joe Scali. Uh, Joe, we'll let you talk about Joe. Gets 30 minutes off the bench for Gladbach after recovering from COVID. Uh, good to see him back. Joe, could you see a noticeable difference with him coming back from COVID? Because sometimes when we have the players coming back, sure. there is a little bit of fatigue, a little bit of a difficulty catching their breath. Uh, could you see any of that? Or did he look okay from the start? 
He looked okay from the start of this right. game. From from his first minute on the field, he comes on in the 61st minute in this loss to Bayer Leverkusen. I thought he was solid. I mean, there's the same issues that are that are there with Scally in terms of he's not this really dynamic 1v1 presence, but he, he brings a lot on the ball with his passing. He was playing left wing back in this game in his 30-minute cameo. Cut inside a lot, created some things on that left side. Did a lot of good Joe Scally things, and, and he's back after that COVID uh, challenge that he had. He's getting back into this team. Those are all good signs for me, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing more of him in the Bundesliga. I am looking forward to talking about Luca De La Torre, so I'm going to move us there now, because uh, he started for Heracles this past weekend. Here are the notes that I have from Graham Ruthven, frustrating player from Joe Lowry, me likey. So we're going to start with <laughs> Graham Ruthven. Graham, what did you find frustrating about Luca De La Torre? Yeah, he, so the disclaimer here is he's not, he's not a player that I am terribly familiar with. I did watch his full performance here. I watched him in, in depth for Heracles. I also tried to kind of, uh, validate the opinion I have from this game by watching some clips from previous games. He seemed to, this seemed to be a pretty typical performance from him, but he, he was used on the left side of a midfield three. Um, he did have quite a lot of freedom to, to drift from left to right from that position. Looking at his, skill set as a player he seemed to be at his best when he was allowed to 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 burst forward i think he's got a, a good little burst of acceleration i think he's got decent um close control i think he's pretty good at striding past a player however i would find myself very very frustrated at the number of negative actions from him so just the number of um basically to be to be frank passes back to the defense now i'm not i understand that sometimes those are um appropriate and needed and you need structure in a team and you can't just have a, a midfielder bursting forward with the ball every single time they receive it but there were certainly i would say five or six occasions i noted when he received the ball uh and on the halfway line when he could have at least gone 10 yards further forward and he was either playing a sideways ball or worse, he was going back to the defence. And I understand that uh, Nijmegen in this game had a lot of players behind the ball, but it was I found him very frustrating to watch. But I think Joe is much hotter on him than I am. I think he did in this game, and I think he's done in the past a really good job of progressing in play. Sure, there's moments where that doesn't happen, but... I would have to honestly sit down and go through each one of those individual moments again that you pulled out to see, did he really miss this opportunity or is there something else happening? I thought he did a darn good job in this game of dropping deep, trying to drive the ball forward on the ball, play the ball between the lines. It didn't happen a lot, right? But for me, that's because of how the opposition defended in this game against Heracles. So it's a hard game for him. He started in the first half deeper. I thought he was even picking up the ball more as a six at times in the first half. In the second half, he was pushed a little bit higher and operated between the lines. Had some great moments driving into the box, playing balls on the floor into that 18-yard box and creating chances for his team. I I like what he brings as a connector. I thought, honestly, he had a good game. And I'm, I'm just not sure we're going to agree on this, which is totally fine, right? We don't have to agree. But I'm still on the the side of I want Luca De La Torre in the national team camp, not as a starter over Musa or McKenney as one of those eight spots. But I think he's the best player off the bench. He covers ground. I think he can do a lot coming on in the 60th minute, or the 75th minute, in one of those eight spots in midfield. That that was going to be my next question. You know, maybe I, maybe I'm lacking the context. Obviously, we're we're asking this um, with the context of the USMNT. And with that midfield three that we all know is, is pretty solid by now, you know, 
McKenny Adams and Musa. How does he? So first of all, who who is he coming in for, and sure. how does he change the character of that unit? Because I, I personally don't see kind of a direct replacement, or maybe it's just I don't have a, a, a full grasp of what no, he is. No, I think I think you're right, Graham. There's not a direct comparison between him and Musa, between him and McKenny. McKenny, especially, I think, is a, a much different player. He likes to move off the ball. He'll get a lot of touches, but he does. He's more sporadic in how he plays. He's a little bit more chaotic, Weston McKinney, in how he plays. He'll get in the box, he'll score with the header. Luca Del Torre is not really going to do that stuff, right? So there's a difference there. I think Musa is a little bit of a better comparison in that they both like to, at least in my view, to drive the ball forward on the dribble. De La Torre, though, I think is a better connector than Musa. And is a little bit less mobile and, and is not someone you're as afraid of in a 50-50 just because of his build. So if I'm Greg Baralter, I'm looking at De La Torre as a guy who can come in for either one of those players who can really connect play and, and build this bridge between midfielder or even defense and attack or midfield and attack, who can do some of those connectory kinds of things. I don't, I think it'd be crazy to start De La Torre over Musa or over McKenney, but I, I think he's good enough to be an impact player off the bench. And I, I just don't know that Baralther necessarily agrees. We don't have enough information on that yet. He didn't agree. It seems to me back in November. Maybe that'll change in this window. Maybe it won't. I guess we'll find out. Joe, a, a couple questions then. I have a few clarifying questions for you both, yeah. actually, but like to the best of your ability, can you talk about like how much would Greg Berhalter have to change to accommodate Luca De La Torre? Like, Nothing. Is he a – so you think he is a sort of plug-and-play or a, yeah. a oh, yeah. pretty much plug-and-play replacement? Yeah, absolutely. I'd even – this is random. Sorry, and then I, I'll get back to your clarifying questions. I even think he could be an option at the six for the U.S. going forward. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we'll see that before the World Cup. But he is mobile enough. He he did a lot of running in this game, guys. I don't know if you picked up on that, but he was moving. He was pressuring the ball. So we can cover some ground as a six. And he, he's press resistant. He can pass the ball forward and, and can drive it forward. I'd like him at the six, but I, I think he's I think he's a plug and play at one of those eight spots, even with that slightly different skill set. What one of the things I, I would I'd like to clarify is in terms of his skill set, I like loads of what I, I saw. That press resistant thing you just talked about there, Joe. That that was one in my notes. You know, he he handled um, pressure really well. You know, having players around him. I thought on the defensive side of the ball, out of possession, he was very quick to get around opponents and crowd them. His covering movement was also very good. So there was a couple times when um, a ball was played into the channel and behind uh, Heracles, and they were slightly exposed, but he was the one to to mop it up. I just felt there was a disconnect between the skill set of him as a player and actually what he was what he was doing on the pitch and I felt the proper football man in me coming out as I was watching him going get it forward man come on get it forward uh that 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 was that was my emotion my overriding emotion watching him well, if he can do that, though, uh, like, and this is for either of you, like, is this a similar situation to Pulisic at Chelsea that he can do this thing, but maybe he's not being asked to do it? Or do we feel like he is not taking that risk? He himself is maybe checking down as opposed to playing some of those more threatening probing passes. I think that could be part of it. Part of it is his inclination to connect. And, and Graham, okay. to your initial point, I... I think I think I agree with part of your overarching thesis on De La Torre in this game in that he he does tend to connect rather than try to hit a home run ball. It's just for me in the, in this game in particular 
the field wasn't really there for him. The pitch wasn't right for him to actually swing and hit that home run ball, right? Not the football pitch, more of a baseball. It's my second baseball analogy today. I don't know what's going on with me. So I think there is some of that. And I do, I do hear what you're saying. And maybe there's room for him to be a bit more aggressive and just to try more things there. Um, Taylor, I've been talking so long. I've completely forgotten what your question was. Well, no, that's <laughs> fine. I think I'm just, I also wanted to like drill down a little bit more on what, Heracles were facing because from a stat side of things, possession is pretty evenly split 52 48. Uh, chances created is 11 to 8 in favor of NEC. Uh, accurate passes is roughly the same. Pass success is roughly the same. Uh, expected goals is even higher for NEC than it is for Heracles. So like Joe, I just want to make clear for people who maybe didn't see this game. Like, it sounds like you are sort of describing an opponent that was very bunkered, that was not very adventurous, but the stats would have you believe that it was much more of a balanced game. I mean, it wasn't completely lopsided, but from what I saw from a lot of the actions I watched of De La Torre, there were 10 men behind the ball. And that, I mean, clearly that's not happening all the time because they did possess. But Heracles, for me, was clearly the more proactive team. They were high-pressing. I didn't see nearly as much of that from NEC in this game. NEC was a bit more reserved. So, I mean, I, I could be off on that. There could have been a lot of moments that I've forgotten about or missed. But in my mind, it was a lot of the time more okay. compact defense. Maybe, maybe we should uh, have the two of you... Uh, assemble a separate and then combined USMNT depth chart, and we can see where everybody fits in uh, once that debate has been had. For now, anything else uh, from either of you on Luca De La Torre? Not for me. I, I really do hope we see him in January. I don't yeah. know that we will, and I'm not particularly optimistic about that, but uh, I, I hope we see him. I, f- I think I think I agree with you, Joe, both in the hope that we will, but the expectation that we might not. He feels like one where if and when the United States secures qualification with a couple games to spare, if that were to happen, then I think we might see Berhalter calling in some new names to see how they fit in. Uh, and maybe Luca De La Torre would be one of those. For now, I expect him to call in the kind of more consistent names, the one that he expects to get the results. And then when they don't. I'm sure we'll hear about it. But for now, let's talk about other players. Uh, Graham, we've punished you by making you talk about some players who maybe haven't been the most fun. Let's talk about maybe the most fun American in the pool right now, Weston McKinney, starting and scoring for Juve. Yeah, he is. He's in form right now. So he played 90 minutes in a a 2-0 win for Juventus over Udinese at the weekend. He scores Juventus' second goal with with a nice header from a cross out left. And as I say, he's he's just he's playing well right now for Juventus. That's maybe three or four games in succession where he has either been Juventus' best player or one of their best players. We obviously spoke at length about him um, when Juventus beat Roma in four three, either last week or the week before. I can't remember. And I just think one of the the key things to this this good run of form has been getting him forward more often and just liberating him a bit more as as an attacking presence. You know, he's maybe not a player you want to have anchoring a a midfield unit. I think Juventus have tried that. Allegri's tried that with him. It hasn't really worked. Now he's, he's, as I say, been liberated slightly more in an attacking role. And um, yeah, there were there were many of the same hallmarks in this performance as the ones we spoke about with um, against Roma. You know, his his good hold up play, good decision making. That's one of the things at the moment that I think is 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 been most notable about how he's playing. It's just his decision making yeah. seems to be so sharp. He's making the right call pretty much every time he gets the ball, and I often think that's one of the the clearest signs of a player who's just feeling himself right now. 
And we do have listeners on this show who are primarily USMNT or US Women's National Team, and that's about it. So, Joe, for people who haven't been watching as much club soccer, when we have our next round of World Cup qualifiers and they see Weston McKinney, I am personally inclined to say that he will be the player that has developed the most since last we saw him. I think he is added a quickness to his game and and a decision-making to his game. Uh, it's the Cruyff quote about like play, like football is the hardest sport to play simply or something like that. It's a simple sport, but it's the hardest to play simple. And I think of that with Weston McKinney, that his decision-making, I think because he has learned a lot uh, under Allegri, I think it has gotten better because he's been able to make those decisions more quickly, which then, I think to Graham's point, makes him play with a bit more creative freedom because he's playing simple passes, but it allows him to be more effective. And I do feel like he will be a very exciting player to watch more so than he already was for the U.S. in those World Cup qualifiers. He's becoming a key player for the U.S. in a way that I don't think he's been before. I think he might be... Uh, he's the hub of this team in terms of he's how they want to go through the, yeah. to the, through the midfield. Right? He's not going to dominate a game on its own, but he's he's important to how the U.S. want to play in pretty much every phase of the game. I'm stoked to watch him with the national team. I think he was really good Back in November, he's been good for the U.S. obviously in the past as well. But between his form right now for Juve, the confidence that he clearly has, and the position he's going to be in with the U.S. for these really important qualifiers, all three of them, I th- I think the stage is set for a big week and a half from Weston mm-hmm. McKinney. And continues to do the Harry Potter celebrations. What more can you ask for there? Eunice Musa starts in the Copa del Rey. Uh, Sam Vines starts for Royal Antwerp. I'm assuming both of those games definitely happen, but I have nothing to say about them. <laughs> Joe, I'm guessing you have a couple things to say about Tanner Tessman and his seven foot four frame, uh, getting 35 minutes for Venezia. I do when I don't, guys. I went through and mm. watched Tessman's actions. I watched him play in this game and then, oop. He's out in the 34th minute, and not just him, but a teammate as well. Neither one of them appeared to be injured. I tried to look for press conference. I tried to figure out what on earth was happening here. My first concern and first priority was to see if Tessman was injured. He wasn't, from what I could tell. I don't know why he came off in this game. He didn't have a ton of touches. He didn't do a whole lot in that 30-plus minutes. But you don't see a lot of double subs in the 34th minute really anywhere. I'm curious. So listeners, if, if anyone knows or, or could sleuth better than I could about this, tweet at us at Total Soccer Show, tweet at me at Josie Lowry, whatever. Tell us, right? Let us know what's going on because I'm very curious. Uh, I too am curious about that as well about Matthew Hoppy. Played seven minutes off the bench for Mallorca, but at least he's getting minutes. And final player to note, Graham Ruthven. Is Cameron Carter-Vickers playing the full 90 for Celtic? Uh, Graham, uh, your thoughts on Cameron Carter-Vickers and the season he is having so far? Yeah, so last night the, the Scottish season resumed. They moved the, the winter break forward because of the, the, the COVID pandemic and the number of cases over the over the Christmas period. So, as I say, last night was uh, when everything got started back up again. Celtic versus Hibs, Cameron Carter-Vickers, he played the full match. And I think he's, I think he's getting better and better for Celtic. Um, he strolled this match and it could have been a tricky matchup for him. Hibs have a lot of pace, particularly in Martin Boyle, who's been one of the, the, I've mentioned him before in this podcast, weirdly. Um, he's been one of the, the players of the season in Scotland and yeah, he just, anytime Boyle ran at him, he just sort of jockeyed him and, and, kept his cool, which is maybe not something I always associate with Carter Vickers of what I've seen um, of him in Scotland so far. But yeah, he he strolled this match. One disappointing thing from this game was there, there was no debut for Chris Muller for Hibs. And I think everyone was expecting that. Even their own fans were expecting that. I was noting on Twitter that when they were making subs, basically 
tens of Hibs fans were tweeting them going, that's not Chris Muller, that's not Chris Muller, that's not Chris Muller. So I, I think um, it was slightly surprising that he didn't get on the pitch, but I expect that he will. I think there's cup games this weekend and then another round of league games midweek next week. So we'll see him, see him um, sooner rather than later. And when we do, I will report back because I'm interested to see what role he's going to play for that Hibs team. So while we wait for Chris Mueller to make his debut, uh, a question for you, Graham, about Cameron Carter-Vickers. When you say he's getting better, when you say he is improving, is that getting better across the board at all things, or is he just improving at the areas where he is already particularly solid? Which is to say, is he passing the ball for Celtic, like, at all? I think he has to in this in this Celtic team, so yes, all right. he is. Okay, um, okay. He's not... He- He's not his um, his usual partner as uh, Carl Starfelt, who is the the guy who's that's a made up name. That is a with... made up name. What is his name? <laughs> Carl Starfelt. You made that it's up. Slightly difficult to say. Um, he's <laughs> normally the one who brings it out from the back, so he he's not doing that. But the way Celtic play, the way Postecoglou's got them playing this season, he has to be a ball player, and I think he struggled with that at first. I also think he's cutting out a lot of the uh, how would you describe them brain farts <laughs> that sometimes he has on the pitch. I remember there was a game uh, was it against Ross County before Christmas where he there was one particular moment where he whiffed a clearance up into the air and then immediately whiffed another one straight up into the air inside his own box and there's been a few moments like that. I haven't I, there certainly wasn't a moment like that last night and I haven't seen that from him for a little while. There is an old firm match coming up quite soon so that that is a step up in quality so um i will report back on how he does in that match but yeah i think he's he's getting more comfortable with his surroundings and there have been reports that celtic want to sign him permanently um so that would be quite interesting as well not since ford prefect have i been so sure that a person was actually an alien as i am with carl Starfelt, uh, which is a difficult name to say, Graham. I appreciate that that one trips you up, but not Postacoglu, which is, I would say, objectively more difficult to pronounce. It is, but there's something about Postacoglu that rolls off the tongue. The tongue whereas Carl yeah. Starfelt, there's a lot of R's and L's there, which is difficult. That makes it a, a, a strange one. Uh, Joe, I was on Jason Davis's show last week. One of the questions he asked me, we were talking about the potential U.S. roster, which we're thinking will be dropped later this week or maybe early next. He asked me who are some players or who is a player that hasn't really been on the radar, hasn't really been involved, but w- but you would not be surprised if he did get some opportunities or if he were to potentially be on that roster if and when the U.S. qualifies, always if and when. Uh, and I included CCV in that conversation just because he is having a strong season. There have been some questions about center back depth with John Brooks and getting called up but not getting called up with Aaron Long's injury status. If you did want to go with like other options or see who else is out there, maybe it's Cameron Carter-Vickers, but then we come back to the kind of the key points of his game and where he maybe doesn't shine in relation to what Berhalter needs from a center back. So how ridiculous is that uh, assertion, Joe, that Cameron Carter-Vickers could theoretically be involved in the national team down the road? I mean, with all the qualifiers you put on it, Taylor, it's not all that ridiculous at all. I think, the, I think though, the way you you phrase the question answers it for me, right? I, 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 think we would, I think we would both be pretty surprised if that happened. I mean, if it happens, I think it means things have pretty drastically changed for CCB and the development that Graham's talking about has really taken root and he's improved almost exponentially with the ball mm-hmm. at his feet. If that stuff happens and he's in Qatar with the United States men's national team, great, because that means good things have happened and he's overtaking other good players. 
I don't know how likely that is, though. So, so looking at the stats from Celtic this season, uh, CCV is averaging the second most passes of of any player, and and the number one is Mister Starfelt, um, and he's you know his pass completion rate is eighty nine point six. He's averaging yeah uh, three point nine long balls forward, and who scores has them? Who scored has them down as long balls? Let me tell you, under Postcoglu, those those are long passes. They're not just uh, okay uh, West Brom style uh, lumped forward. Uh, attacks so yeah he's he's definitely he's definitely improved over the course of the season and if it's if you guys as USMNT fans are concerned about his ability in the ball I would say those concerns are maybe now slightly eased given how he's developing at Celtic I would rebut that point by asking where those passes are going because my assumption is that it's CCV to Starfelt Starfelt back to CCV CCV out wide to a fullback who plays it back to CCV who drops it back to the goalkeeper that I feel like oftentimes we see center backs having the highest uh, pass pass percentages and passes completed but a lot of the time that's because they're passing back and forth while they try to figure out what to do if CCV is having sort of probing runs that lead to a pass then I definitely feel better about things uh, but right now my primary interest is going to be on proving that Carl Starfelt is indeed it is a hard name to say Graham you're not wrong is indeed an alien the second one will be uh, where CCV's pass is going that's going to be my sort of objective for Celtic I'm glad we can all agree Joe I appreciate you calling me out for my many many qualifiers because honestly I didn't have much of an answer I feel like the actual answer is Berhalter is going to kind of stick with the group that we've seen so far with maybe a few players who have been on the periphery given more opportunities but for the most part it's going to be the people that have gotten us to this point will continue to get us to this point agreed yeah i completely agree all right well on that note we've reached an accord so far we'll see how that plays out over the course of the season but for now gentlemen thank you so much for being here with me today graham ruffin thank you for taking all the time to watch and talk about all these many americans doing things this past weekend no problem taylor just uh don't ever make me watch west brob again okay <laughs> all right uh, well i'll get on if that all right if, so if i don't have to watch them again <laughs> no west brom for graham joe if there were a team that you would like to avoid to have to watch uh going forward who would that be okay if graham's taking west brom i'm taking norwich baby that's we can what do I this we can oh, this damn, that's the team i should have taken <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to both of you uh, swapping those next week when you have to watch the other one and it makes your brains bleed. But for now, thank you both for being here with me today. Uh, Joe, I cannot remember if I already said thank you. So thank you again, Joe. Yeah, you got it, Taylor. All right. There we go. Listeners, thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you all again very soon. 